I invite you to turn with me to Romans chapter 6, verses 19 through 23. I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. For just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, resulting in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. Therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the outcome of those things is death. But now, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit, resulting in sanctification, and the outcome, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus, our Lord. Father in heaven, I ask for your help now to open verses 22 and 23 of this chapter faithfully so that we can understand them in their biblical sense and intention and proportion and import and magnificence and power. Guard me from error and pride. Help me to be true to the scope of your word. Lord, these are weighty things we're taking up here, eternal life and holiness, sanctification. Please come. I need your help. Guard us from the evil one who would distort and deceive and distract. May the Spirit rest with weightiness upon us as we look at your word. A most precious, precious gift this Christmas. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's Christmas Eve, and our hearts are brimming with 2 Corinthians 9.15. Thanks be to God for his unspeakable gift. So the first Christmas was all about a gift, namely Christ given to the world to love us and die for us and rise for us and reign for us. And this Christmas, I want to talk about the gift of sanctification. The gift of sanctification. And I know sanctification is a church word. I don't think I've ever seen the word sanctification in the Minneapolis Star Tribune. It's a church word. So, one might say, well, why don't you choose a non-church word? Well, there are reasons for that. Um... Not the least of which is sanctification is built on the Latin sanctus, which means holy. And the world doesn't know anything about holiness. That's that's a church word too. I will not let the scope of my reality be governed by the paucity of vocabulary in the fallen secular world. What a folly 
to think that the world could create enough words to treat infinite realities we learn from the Bible. The, the force must go the other way. There are realities in the Word about holiness that we must teach the world to know. We've got to tell them what they don't have a clue about and then create words for them. And tell them you've got to get the word holiness into your vocabulary. You need the word sanctification. If we tried to build it on a non-Latin word and try to say holification, it wouldn't be any better. So I think there are words where there's enough overlap, I'm happy to take them, plunder the Egyptians and use what they have and make it as plain as I can. But I'm not going to sacrifice the word sanctification because nobody in the world uses it. I'm going to teach it. So here's a definition. Progressive becoming like Jesus. Gradually becoming like Jesus. Or becoming holy. Becoming conformed to the image of Christ. Little by little, over time, from conversion till Jesus comes back, or you die, you are in the process of sanctification. Becoming sanctified. Becoming holy. And my point this morning is it's a gift. So we're going to look at verses 22 and 23. And here's the problem. If eternal life is a gift, as verse 23 says, now we're talking eternal life right now. If eternal life is a gift, you see where it says that in the second half of verse 23? The free gift of God is eternal life. Not a wage, not something you earn, not something you deserve. It's a gift. If eternal life is a free gift, and if eternal life is the outcome of sanctification, as verse 22 says it is, then sanctification has to be a free gift. Now that's what I want to work out with you for the first ten minutes or so. And then apply it to your life. Let's start with verse 22. Verse 22 says, but now having been freed from sin, now notice these passive verbs, we've noted them for weeks. This is God acting here. Now having been freed by God from sin and having been enslaved by God to God, you derive your benefit or literally have your fruit unto sanctification, resulting in sanctification and the outcome. The outcome of being freed from sin, the outcome of being enslaved to God, the outcome of having your fruit and the outcome of sanctification. The outcome is eternal life. Eternal life doesn't come from nowhere. At the end of your life, you will have eternal life if you are walking the path of sanctification. So you can see it. Frontwards, or you can say it backwards. You can say, eternal life is the outcome of sanctification. Or you can get around the other way and say, sanctification is the path and the only one that leads to eternal life. Now, what's the relationship between this truth that eternal life is the outcome of sanctification... And verse 23, what's the relationship between the two verses? Well, notice what verse 23 begins with. 
our wonderful favorite theological word for, F-O-R, which means because. So verse 23 is brought in as a warrant or an argument or a ground or a foundation for what was just said about eternal life being the outcome of sanctification. So when you put the two together, uh, how does it go? Eternal life is the outcome of sanctification because, verse 23, eternal life is a free gift. Now when you see things like that, you've got to stop and think. Eternal life is the outcome of a life of progressive likeness to Jesus because the free gift of God is eternal life. How does that work? It must assume that this pathway that leads to life is also a gift. The connection between sanctification and eternal life as an outcome is grounded in stating that life is a gift. Eternal life is a gift, so the pathway that leads there must be a gift. If you say that the holiness which you must have, and, and remember, we're not talking about perfection here. We're talking about direction. When you're born of God, you get a new direction in life. There are a lot of stumblings, a lot of failings along the way. But you got a new direction, Godward, in faith. And you want to make progress, and you hate it when you fail. But you're not perfect. But there's a holiness, according to Hebrews 12, 14, without which we won't see the Lord. And we're pursuing it. It's called sanctification. And if you say that... Eternal life is a free gift, but the holiness that gets you there isn't. Eternal life isn't. It's like going over to the Amtrak station. In St. Paul, waiting for the Empire Builder to take you to Seattle. It's a great ride. Do it sometime. And somebody walks up to you and says, I want to give you a free ride to Seattle. You get on the train... You're there free. On me. Seattle, free. But you got to have a ticket to get on, and I'm not buying your ticket. Hmm. That's interesting. Free trip to Seattle. The train gets you there, but i I got to have a ticket to get on. He won't buy the ticket. That's what it would be like to say... Eternal life is a free gift in Seattle, but holiness is not a gift. You gotta do that. You gotta do that. God do that, you do this. Team up, get there. That's not what, that's not what the verses say. This is not a new statement to say that sanctification is a gift, because verse 17 was even more explicit. Didn't have to do this kind of logical thinking. It was stated bluntly. You see what verse 17 says? We've seen it several weeks in a row. Thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart. Why is God being thanked that you became obedient from the heart? 
Because God gave you the obedience from the heart. That's why he's being thanked. If he didn't give it, you wouldn't thank him. If you did it, you'd thank you. If your parents did it, you'd thank them. If your genetic makeup did it, you'd thank it. But if God does it, you thank God. And that's what verse 17 is doing. Thanks be to God that you became obedient and were freed from slavery to sin. Because God gave you that freedom. That's sanctification. Sanctification is a gift. Now, let's deal with two practical applications of this truth. Number one, what about your your act of obedience? Your doing and your choosing and your preferring. Do you do anything? You have any responsibility here? What is your act, your choice? Well, just as clearly in Romans 6, as the truth is taught, sanctification is a gift, the other truth is taught, sanctification is your doing. And you're choosing and you're preferring. That's what sanctification is. It's what you do. It's what you choose. It's what you prefer in life. That's what makes you like Jesus. What you do. What you think. What you feel. What you choose. I'll show you where that is. Verse 11. It's in four verses. Verse 11. Consider yourselves dead to sin but alive to God in Christ Jesus. There's a command. Consider. Do something with your brain. Set it on something. Direct it towards something. Don't be passive. This is the command. If you coast, you perish. Second verse, verse 12. Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. There's another command. Fight sin. Defeat sin. Wage war against sin. Do it. Choose it. Act it. Prefer it. Don't be passive. Verse 13. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. So here's a command. You must do this. Take your hand and do something righteous with it, not something ugly with it. Take your eyes. Set them on something holy, not something unholy. Take your ears. Listen to good music, not rotten music. Take your sexual organs and abstain from fornication and adultery. Take your tongue and stop criticizing and be kind and gentle and merciful. Do those things you're commanded to. Don't be passive. Take this body and put it to use for righteous purposes, verse 13 says. Verse 19, almost the same thing, second half of the verse. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness resulting in further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. Sanctification is something you do, something you choose, something you prefer. It's a complex of preferences and the expression of those preferences in behavior. Now, question. We have two truths from Romans 6. Clear as day in my judgment in this chapter. One, sanctification is a gift. Two, 
Sanctification is your act, your choice, your preference. That's what it is. How do they fit together? They fit together like this. Your doing is God's gift to you. So you should not say, beware how you talk about this and how you think about this. You should not say, well, if sanctification is God's gift, I don't need to do anything. That's like saying, since doing righteousness is the gift of God, I don't need to do righteousness. Which is nonsense. Since choosing to get up and read my Bible is the gift of God, I don't need to choose to get up and read my Bible. The gift of God is not instead of your effort, it is your effort. When you apply your mind towards righteousness, it's a gift. When you abstain from fornication, it's a gift. When you choose what is holy, it's a gift. The gift is not instead of you, it is you. Now, there are two places in the Bible, or in the New Testament, where there are classic texts to explain the dynamic of this gift and duty. If you want to look at them with me, they're very important. Philippians 2, 12. They're both in Philippians, in fact. And there are other places besides these, but these are the clearest New Testament descriptions of the dynamic of the Christian life as both gift and duty. Philippians chapter 2, verse 12 and 13. It goes like this. So then, my beloved, just as you have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for... It is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. That is structured logically exactly the way Romans 6, 22 and 23 are structured. You work. Work out your salvation. Make choices have preferences, do deeds, because God is in you making those choices, doing those deeds, causing those preferences. They are yours because they're a gift from Him. And don't ever get it backwards. Don't ever do what Paul never did and say, well, if God is at work in me to will and to do, then I don't need to will and do. That's exactly the opposite of the way the Bible talks. And we might put a parenthesis here and say, when we become Christians, our minds must be transformed. 
The world does not have categories for this for one simple reason. God is not in the picture and He's unique. The relationship with God is sui generis. There's a big Latin phrase. One of a kind. There are no analogies for how a human, totally, utterly, finite, dependent human relates to an absolute, independent, all-supplying God. There are no human analogies to that. Therefore, if you're going to live in the light of that relationship, you can't take your cues from anything the world develops minus God. And the fact is, most theology has been developed without putting God at the center where he belongs. We must, when we become Christians, begin to think the thoughts of God as strange as they are. Like, you work because God's at work in you. You will because underneath is the willing of God. We must begin to think God's thoughts. And that is why he gave us the Bible. You've got to saturate yourself in the Bible. If you ignore the Bible, you will come to church on Sunday morning and it will sound like a foreign language. Not because I use words that are too big, but because I use structures of thought that are alien to your brain. And the only way to become at home in a world of thought that takes God as supreme and central is to immerse yourself in the Bible. Close parenthesis. The second text is Philippians 3.12. This one is even more wonderful, if that's possible, than 2.12 and 13 in capturing the dynamic of gift and duty here. Watch it. Philippians 3.12. Not that I have already obtained it. Talking about perfection with Christ. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect. Well, what do I do then if I'm not yet perfect? What do I do? Just coast because God gives everything? Here's what he does. But I press on. Jesus talked about striving to enter the kingdom. Fighting, cutting off hands, gouging out eyes. I press on so that I may lay hold of that. Now what? What? Watch how he defines the that which he is laying hold of, that I may lay hold of that for which also I was laid hold of by Jesus Christ. Now there is Paul modeling for us how to think and talk when God is sovereign and you are responsible. I must press on. I must present my bodies a living sacrifice to God. My body a living sacrifice. I must put to death the deeds of the body. I must set my mind on things that are come. I must meditate on the law of the Lord day and night. I must pray without ceasing. And reach forward to take hold of the growing and finally completed perfection. Why? A sovereign Christ has already laid hold on me for that. And oh, how worldly it would be to say, 
if he has laid hold on me for that and he is sovereign, I do not need to press on. And every time you hear that logic, you know where it's coming from. Hell or just the world. If he has laid hold on me, he is God. And I don't need to try to lay hold on him anymore. If you say that and mean it, he hasn't laid hold on you. Because the sure fire evidence that Christ the Sovereign has taken hold of you is that you are in love with him, striving to take hold of him. That's the evidence. It's not the cause. Sanctification is not the cause of justification. It's the evidence of justification. So if you're going to play this logic game and not follow the Bible and follow your own worldly brain, you simply give evidence you haven't been mastered by the king. And then you need to be scared and pray. Let's be biblical in our obedience. Sanctification is our work and sanctification is God's gift. Sanctification is our willing and sanctification, that willing, is God's gift. We are accountable. God is sovereign. Let us press on for God's glory. Because 1 Peter 4.11 says, Let him who serves, serve in the strength that God supplies so that in everything God may get the glory. That's the reason this doctrine is important. You want God to get glory in your life? That's the reason you're on planet earth, for God to get glory in your life. You were created to give glory to God, to make God look good in the world. That's why you exist, to make God look good. Peter says... God will look good when you serve in the strength that he supplies. And if you don't believe he supplies it, you can't glorify God in your strivings. You become a legalist. A legalist is a person who puts out and works hard at religious things and does not believe and trust in sanctification as a gift. Here's the second practical application of this, quickly. There are two responses that are going on in this room right now, and some gradations in between, because we're not wholly one or the other. We can describe one kind of response as natural. 1 Corinthians 2 talks about the natural man and the spiritual man. The natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit because they are foolishness to him. The spiritual man tests all things and has the mind of Christ and receives them as precious. Now think about this. Think about where you are and think about people you know and think about the future and how you want to live your life and how you want to read the Bible, how you want to hear sermons and how you want to relate to doctrines that are precious. Let's talk about the natural response first, the natural man. This doctrine that sanctification is a gift and is a duty is like a two before 
in the hand of a blind man walking through a china shop for those who are natural. They receive it into their heads and the first thing they think of are five problems, theological problems. And that's where they stay. And they wheel those problems all over the place. And every time the two-by-four breaks another another crystal, they say, see, it's a crummy two-by-four. I told you, these doctrines are lousy. Crash, bang, slash. The two-by-four is intended to hold up the rafters at the back of the store and carried through the middle with people with eyes. The natural man does not walk away from doctrine a lot of natural men are in the church. They create churches. And they take the doctrines in halfway. Get them right to here. And then they wheel them. And kill people right and left. So the natural man can be a very religious man. And very destructive man. What's he missing? If he hears the news, thanks be to God that you became obedient. And therefore, your obedience is a gift. If he hears that, the natural man feels no desperation for that to be true. A spiritual man is desperate that it be true because he knows he's enslaved. A spiritual man knows there's no hope for me if sanctification is not a gift. I'm enslaved. I know my heart is hard as nails. I'll be a rebel all my life if God doesn't break in on me and help me and change me. So the difference between the natural man and the spiritual man right up front is the natural man feels no desperation for the doctrine to be true and therefore there's no reason for him to think it's true. He has no need for it to be true in his own mind, which is why proud people don't like this teaching. It doesn't fit their worldview. It doesn't make any sense to them. They're not desperate. He doesn't see any fitness in it. He doesn't see any beauty in it. He doesn't feel any gratitude for it. So let's shift over to the spiritual man and draw things to a close by trying to describe how the spiritual person receives the truth that sanctification is a gift and a duty. We've got brains. Spiritual people have brains. We see problems. The difference is... You don't spend the main share of your time bellyaching about the problems. You patiently pursue solutions all your life and are happy when you find some. But to be consumed at that level not getting to the level of worship and gratitude and cherishing and loving and broken-hearted zeal for these things, that's like a man who finds a treasure hidden in a field. It's picture one of these big pirate treasure cases. Got it in your mind now? And he goes over, I found it. And he lifts it up, and as he opens the top, he goes, and he sees gold. 
and spends the rest of the day complaining about that. Gear that hinge. Hinge. Oh, I hate those hinges. They're always making noises. That's a rotten treasure box. It's got a hinge that goes. The fact that sanctification is a gift is a treasure worth a billion dollars. Because you have to be sanctified to get eternal life. And you won't be if it's not a gift. So to complain about the structures of thought, to spend all of your time spinning out the problems of accountability and spinning out the what about the people who haven't heard about the gospel? What about the people who don't believe? What about the Christians who don't make any progress? And what about them? What about them? What about Sure, we got to work on those. But if you don't move beneath that to thank you, thank you, thank you that I'm saved. Thank you that I obey a little bit. Thank you. You're a natural person. We're not playing games. These are not word games. These are not logic games. These are not theological games. We're talking about reality. The living God, by His Spirit, enabling us to do what we have to do in order to inherit eternal life. Namely, walk in a new direction. Let me sum it up with aptat. And I'll just give them to you quickly. APTAT, A-P-T-A-T is an acronym. I'm going to give you what they stand for because this is my best effort to describe how you live the Christian life knowing that it's a gift to you and that you must perform it. You perform it and your performance is a gift. A, admit that you are desperately needy and must have a gift in order to make any progress in holiness. That's A, admit. P, Pray for the gift. If God comes to you with a gift, don't complain about the gift. Receive the gift. Love the gift. Cry out for the gift. If, if I heard, if I heard that God were willing to give me something I desperately needed, my main Reaction would not be to spend time belly aching about the problem it creates, but I would plead for it. You know, when I'm studying theology, I find myself praying quite often, Lord, at the front end of this and on the surface of this, I'm very confused. Would you grant the truth of this to take place in my heart so that my brain can catch up with my experience. I pray that a lot. Because if I have to wait on my full understanding before I experience all that the Bible has for me to experience, I hardly get anywhere. Join me in that. Invite God, pray to God that He do the truth that you don't understand. And you know what? When you walk in the truth, lights go on everywhere about the truth. Rather than saying, I'm going to figure this out from outside first, and then if I like it, I jump in. It'll never work. T. Trust the promises of God. A, P, admit, pray, trust. So, here you are, very practical. You've got a choice of generosity versus selfishness, right? 
Maybe you haven't been giving it all this year. or Maybe there's some desperately needy person in your neighborhood and, and you want to help them and yet you want to buy this new computer or whatever and uh, you're torn. That's real life. What do you do? You admit your need for God. You pray for His sanctifying influences and then T, you trust a particular promise. You go to Philippians 4.19 you say, My God will supply all my needs according to His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. I will bank on that and I will be generous and He'll meet all my needs that I think I can't meet if I skip generosity. And it's the, it's the promise, it's the trust in the promise that is the decisive conscious liberator. The Holy Spirit's in that. You say, why did I read that promise? Why did I bank on that promise? Because God is in you to work and to will His good purpose. 4A, A-P-T-A, act. you got to act. You're doing, you're willing, you're preferring is yours. It's yours. You're responsible for it. You'll be held accountable for it. And it's a gift of God. 5T, thank Him. When, you, when you've done what you can do, by His grace, thank Him for it. So here I am at the end of the sermon, almost at the end of the year, and I feel uh, toward you, Bethlehem, two things above most other things. One is I feel humbled by my failures in leadership. And the other is I feel so thankful at our successes and blessings. They are blessings. They are gifts. And those two things is what I want to call you mainly in sanctification to experience. Everybody knows you're going to fail. Let your failures humble you. Let your increments of holiness Fill you with gratitude. Thanks be to God that I became obedient from the heart. Romans 6.17 Because grateful people and humble people enter eternal life. Proud people and ungrateful people don't enter eternal life. So let's be meek. Let's be broken-hearted by our stumblings and so stay lowly with one another, not putting ourselves above or before, but under and behind as servants. And then let's blow the lid off with gratitude at every increment of goodness that is in this church, no matter how much badness we bring to it. Would you stand with me? And now the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make His face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up His countenance upon you and give you peace and joy and humility and gratitude and a very merry Christmas. You're dismissed.